Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Nathaniel. And I'm Doris Marr. And today we are sitting down with Professor Michelle Tucson. Michelle Tucson is a professor of history at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, with an expertise in the areas of modern British history, the British Empire, and women's history. Her teaching and scholarship broadly engaged the relationship between geopolitics, culture, and human rights. She is also an author, her current book project being The Last Treaty, The Middle Eastern Front, and the End of the First World War. Along with writing books, she also has written articles in the American Historical Review and the Journal of Modern History, among others, and she is the Vice President slash President-Elect of the North American Conference on British Studies. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Tucson. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So, Professor Tucson, I'd first like to ask your background. Um, just generally, what sparked your interest in, in history, your focus on humanitarianism, and you are a professor now as well. What sparked your interest in teaching? Oh, that's a great question. So um, I went to Berkeley um, and uh, as a, a PhD student, and I knew I wanted to um, study European history. Um, I ended up uh, with an advisor who led me towards the topics of um, looking at liberalism and humanitarianism. And he ended, he wrote this article that I really didn't discover until a little bit later in my uh, career on humanitarianism. And it really changed my thinking about the importance of understanding humanitarianism in the context of um, the 19th and early 20th centuries. So, um, I decided I wanted to focus on that in my later career and or this my mid-career, I guess I should say. And it um, it's really sort of led me to change my teaching to focus much more on questions of human rights, of war, um, genocide. I started really as a gender historian. I studied looking at women's rights. But in my view, it really is a, a uh, they're all connected. They're connected because it's really talking about and thinking about how individuals interact with um, governments in questions of um, welfare schemes, of humanitarianism, human rights. Um, and those questions, I think, are really important for um, an informed citizenry. And, and my students are very much uh, engaged in those topics. So it's led me there. Yeah, I, I think the emphasis on like women in in humanitarianism is is definitely like bigger than I realized until I I had an internship this past summer with BRAC, um, which is headquartered in Bangladesh, and their focus is particularly on providing like um, training, education, stuff like that for women. Because I I think like I've heard in several of my classes, it's it's typically um, like uh, what, what's the word I'm thinking of. Um, like welfare aid type programs typically go to uh, the female head of household as well. So yeah, just a lot of like interconnectedness in this. Yeah, well, one of the first articles I wrote on this was about a, a Quaker woman called Anne Mary Burgess. And one of the things she did was to figure out how women could create self-sustaining communities in the absence of male heads of household. So um, there's a um, there are a series of massacres in the Ottoman Empire in the late 19th century, and the men and the boys are gone. And so she goes to the Ottoman Empire, she goes to 
Constantinople today, Istanbul. And she sets up these industrial workshops. And these women, she trains them in arts and crafts. And they make rugs and they weave and they um, uh, they uh, do embroidery. And what she does, she brokers these products. She sells them to um, philanthropists and charity shops in Britain and the U.S. And it gives these women um, an income. And she also provides safe haven. So these are campuses she creates. So it's not only that they're coming to work every day, but they're in these safe places. And of course, men are trained as well, those who, are, those, those who she can train, but she really emphasizes training women who are, as, she, as they put it, the 19th century, without, without male breadwinners. Um, and so uh, that idea of aid going to women is an old one. Um, and it, it's very much cast in some ways as a, as a sort of um, entrepreneurial enterprise, which I was very surprised, this idea that humanitarian aid work is a business. Um, and it's a business not to make the humanitarians rich, <laughs> but rather to figure out how to create industries that um, will allow individuals to self-sustain in moments of great crisis. So you're absolutely right. There is a, there is a focus on women and it has been, it's a historical focus. It's been for happening a long time. Yeah. So sort of on that humanitarian aid and like welfare programs, et cetera, um, may I ask like how effective or what are your thoughts on um, how effective these institutions or states might be at providing um, or monitoring the humanitarian crisis in like the Middle East or other areas of the world? So are you asking me about the relationship between humanitarian aid work and uh, uh, the state and the crisis yeah. that yeah that's a very tough one. So what I've been <laughs> what I've discovered which really surprised me in this latest project is that the military plays a very big role in humanitarian aid projects and it's not simply that they provide the um, the safety for humanitarian aid workers or they provide the railways or they provide the the supplies but they're it's it's integrated into um, many military-run missions, especially when you have civilians who are in the way, as you might say, of war. So you have a battlefront, and the military is engaging an enemy. This, and again, I'm talking about World War One. So um, they're engaging the enemy um, in um, in what was then known as Mesopotamia. So. The, the civilians are living and 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 tilling their fields. So what do you do? Well, the military finds a way to provide aid and food and shelter for those human those civilians who are sort of caught in the middle of this war. Now, are they doing it because it's good and it's right? Well, you know they're doing it because it's in the way of the military mission. But you. Couple that with humanitarian aid work, the aid workers come in and they also work in these camps and these um, with educational um, uh, projects. So I guess what I'm saying is that that um, when we think about humanitarianism, we can't um, not think about the military. We can't not think about the state. We have to understand how they work together in crisis zones to understand the full picture. Um, often people talk about humanitarianism as, a, as it's as if it's kind of in a vacuum, like it exists separately. People are in need, so you feed them and they need, um, you know, they need aid, so you provide it. They need education. But but in fact, these are happening in real time in places of crises. And that means that there are a lot of actors involved. And what I found was humanitarian aid work seems to work 
best when the vested interests are not just from one side, either Western humanitarian aid workers or certainly the military or the state, but rather when you have the people who are receiving aid having some voice in what kind of aid they're getting and um, what how, how it's being administered. So I think we have to take a multi pronged approach when we think about what how humanitarianism functions. It doesn't function on its own. Kind of to that last point as well about um, basically giving the people who are receiving the aid uh, enough input in it as well. Um, I think there's definitely a lot of like white saviorism um, and the notion that like people are needy. I have what they need. I'm going to give them money and then I feel good about myself. Um, but I think kind of just like going past that notion it's like these people are still um autonomous yes they might need additional assistance right now but they're fully capable as well um and this kind of just goes down that further i guess but um most of the the works that you've written focus on on genocide like the armenian genocide humanitarian um, humanitarianism and gender is there anything in particular that that kind of like shocked you or stood out that um, still sticks with you, like something you read and you were like, wow, I, I can't believe that happened. So one of the most surprising um, testimonies that I read um, was of a little boy who comes to a refugee camp. Um, his family's fleeing massacres. Um, they track they trek hundreds of miles and they end up in this British run refugee camp in World War One. And his story is almost, I wouldn't say joyous, joyous, but it's, it's a story of someone um, who made this work, um, that this aid was something that his family found a way to navigate and found a way to make homes for themselves in the aftermath of these crises. And so I, we tend to hear the stories of, you know, aid benefiting corrupt governments or not going to the right places, or like you said, um, just being given to make you feel better, right? You click a button and you say, you click something on your phone and you're able to donate, right? And you're like, wow, that's done, right? But, but when you hear the stories of um, how, sometimes the surprising ways aid is being used, it, it's, it, it humbles you in front of this before the sources because these sources are, these are real people's lives who are affected by crises and it works unevenly to be sure. Um, but, um, but if you listen to the people who are receiving these aid, um, aid projects or, or on the receiving end of them, I, I think you learn a lot about what works and what, and what doesn't. And historically they're not a group that is listened to. <laughs> And sometimes they actually need speaking for in the sense that the language is different than the aid worker. So what I found is that sometimes um, they, what we don't pay attention to a lot is um, indigenous aid groups. So we often talk about the Western aid workers coming in, providing money, providing clothing. But there's a, there I, I found dozens of indigenous aid groups that work on the ground who can translate, who 
who can talk to people who have an interest, um, who are there providing aid. And I think we kind of ignore that middle, those, those voices that are between the Western aid worker and the recipient, which are often these people who have a real vest. They're from the communities. Um, they feel invested in the well-being of the communities. So I, I guess what I would say is that listening, um, for me as a historian, listening to sources, but in humanitarianism uh, and its practice, uh, it's really figuring out who's speaking and when and hearing what um, what they're saying. Yeah, thank you for that. And you briefly mentioned a bit about social media. I'm wondering, like, what are your thoughts about the role social media plays when it comes to, like, aid and all that sort of... Um that is a great question. So I'm a historian, so I, I, you know my 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 world is 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 the past. But the world was satu saturated in media in the moment that I'm looking at. But different kind of media. So for us, you know, um, what I'm going to talk about tonight is the fil uh, film, um, radio, uh, newsreels. Uh, those were all new. People hadn't seen moving pictures in the 1920s, um, uh, and they hadn't heard voices coming from boxes in their corner of their living room. So media is. It was there really at the birth of mass humanitarian movements. Um, and uh, you, you don't even think of poster as media, posters, but like just posters in a subway that says, give money, send money to this area. It, it's been going on a long time. And they are tried and true methods. Uh, what I think of social media, I think that it's important to launch campaigns that are ethically sound. Um, I think there was a, there's been a lot of debate about how you raise money, showing suffering bodies to suffering people and saying, give, give this money because you can save this person is, is an unethical position considered today. <laughs> um, but, but finding ways to create campaigns that have an ethos of, 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 of transparency and clarity and um, don't merely work on your gut. Now, the problem is the immediacy of our social media today needs campaigns that work on your gut. Um, but uh, it, it's, I think it's something that has to be grappled with. And we have to be, as consumers of media, we have to be savvy on when those campaigns come across our desk, what are they, or our phones, or whatever they're coming across, that we are uh, cognizant of what's being asked and what it's going to actually yield. One thing that social media has shown me as well is it's very easy to put your opinion out there and then have other people share it as well. And I think that that sometimes does cause sort of a like um, perhaps a lack of like an expanded picture of like the, the full scheme of everything going on. Um, there was something I, I heard recently, relatively recently on a podcast about how in uh, Tijuana, um, Immigrants trying to get into the U.S. coming from Latin American countries um, were basically given very little to nothing um, in terms of like um, actually quickly getting into the U.S. Um, if if at all, as as well as just like basic necessities. Whereas Ukrainian refugees were they were getting into the U.S. within like two days. Um, they were given like a nice place to stay in the meantime. Um, and so I think I what I'm curious about is. Your thoughts on um, in situations like this where there's like for Ukrainian refugees, I think there is an assumption that they're being they're being housed elsewhere for now, but they will return to Ukraine for Latin American um, refugee seekers. I think there's more of an assumption that it's less likely that they will return to their home country. So I'm just curious 
um, in terms of trying to find a state for the stateless or people who are seeking refugee um, status, who should be responsible? Like, is it is it like the U.S. government should be responsible for that? Is it a larger organization? That's a great question. Um, less than one percent of refugees are ever resettled. I mean, just that's a stunning number. I mean, just to think of just being on the move like that. So the resettlement question is a big one. And it's one that the international community has failed at, right? Like people are going to keep moving. <laughs> Wars, um, civil unrest, um, violence, people are going to flee them. And it's a reality. And the idea of saying, we'll shut our borders and it's somebody else's problem is not working. <laughs> It doesn't work for the refugees, and it certainly doesn't work for um, host countries, which um, get involved in violating human rights. I mean, if you think about what's happening at the border with detention centers and not letting not letting those detention centers, letting people into those detention centers to see what's going on, um, that's 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 a problem for the U.S. That's not a, it's not a problem. I mean, you know, in, in terms of, of how people are being ethically treated. And in, con in a country like the U.S. that touts the rule of law, it's particularly important to treat those who seek asylum with the rights that they are afforded under international law. And so one of the things we get confused about, I think, or is is difficult to parse is refugees, economic migrants coming to seek a better life, coming to um, improve their economic outlook, um, and refugees who are asylum seekers, who are a, who are seeking a safe haven, and that's a real category. <laughs> and if those categories are not, if that is not honored, if the U.S. doesn't honor them, who else is going to honor them, right? And so, I think the U.S. has an outsized role because of our role in making those rules, <laughs> those rules with Europe at the end of World War I that were made. Um, asylum rules are, are developed over the course of the second half of the 20th century. Um, I don't think we can abdicate as the US, abdicate that because we helped make those rules. Mm -hmm. And I, you can change the rules, <laughs> but refugees aren't going to go away. So I think we have to understand, and it's not always to tell, easy to tell the difference, someone seeking you know, economic opportunity versus someone seeking asylum. But that's what the job of, of host nations is to figure out. And the idea that people are waiting years um, for asylum cases to come up is, is not tenable and um, isn't working under the rules that the U.S. and Europe helped forge after World War One. So you could change the rules, <laughs> you could follow the rules, or you can enact them more fairly. I also want to say that I don't think it's up to one host country. Like this has to be a shared responsibility for neighboring countries, not just the U.S. and and Canada and Germany and you know, but but countries in the region if they can take um, like Greece in World War One after World War One, one in four Greeks had refugee status. Greece just took everybody, and then they gave them citizenship. I mean, it's kind of an incredible thing to if, to think about. Could you imagine one in four people having like, okay, this is? I mean, and and this was a war torn region. It wasn't like Greece was <laughs> was you know having a boom time economically. They were recovering from the war. So that Greece should have that kind of burden after World War One doesn't quite seem equal. But they they took it on. So I, I just think that it has to be. Um, 
it has to be a shared burden and it has to be something that we um, think about in the context of the asylum laws that we already have on the books. Yeah, thank you for that. That's very interesting, you know, to really analyze and see the effects that these rules that these powerful states made years ago um, have had and how they're continuously having effects on today's um, world and news overall. Um, sort of shifting a bit, could you tell us more a bit, um, correct me if I'm pronouncing it wrong, but the Luzon Project, um, like what does this entail? How did you uh, become a part of it and contribute to the project itself? Well, um, Lausanne is a city in Switzerland. Um, it's where the last Treaty of World War One was signed with the Ottoman Empire. And this project, and it's, okay, so it's it was signed in um, 1923. So we're coming up on, you know, we're coming up on 2023. So this project is commemorating that 100th anniversary of the signing of that last treaty. And um, I'm currently finishing up a book called The Last Treaty, which looks at Lausanne and its legacies um, and the importance, particularly for World War One, and some of these issues about um, what I'll talk about tonight, the refugees and the refugee issues that come out of that Lausanne Treaty. So the Lausanne Project is looking at the effects of this peace treaty on all sorts of things, on um, not just refugees, but also um, the development of modern states in the Middle East, uh, the rise of modern Turkey, um, questions about um, economic development of, of these regions. And it's really asking us to think about World War I as a long war that doesn't end in 1919 with the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, but really is a war that continues to have after effects. Um, and these, treaty, these treaties um, matter in when or, war ends. Um, one of the things I'm arguing in this project, in part of this project, is that, you know, World War I, it depends where you are when World War I ends. Like, if you're in Belgium, that's different than if you're in Syria. <laughs> World War I is a, is a long war, and um, I think we have to think about wars in those kinds of contextual ways. So that project is trying to complicate our understandings of World War I as a, a European war, one, and a, and a war that ends in 1919. Yeah, I, I think it, it definitely e um, is easy to simplify things just in terms of like just trying to make it simple for um, memory and all of that. Uh, also in schooling, it's like because we were just told like, oh, World War One over in 1919 and and that's it. Moving on to the interwar years. You're like, what is an interwar year? <laughs> right. <laughs> Why? That's weird. <laughs> <clears throat> um, so I wanted to uh, get some some of your thoughts on um as a professor, some advice you would have for college students. Um, our uh, audience is basically just college students. Uh, we have some people in random parts of the world as well. But um, uh, you were a Fulbright scholar as well. Um, so any advice you have for college students generally or people seeking a Fulbright scholarship um, or if you want to share that experience? Oh, that's as well. terrific. Um, yes, that's that's, you know, for me, um, my higher education was just it, it was it opened a whole new world to me. Um, and uh, I had never traveled uh, before. I went to college and I did my education abroad programs and Fulbright funded my dissertation research. So I was not have been able to finish my Ph.D. Um, I mean, if other funding might have come along. But um, full, the Fulbright was a fantastic program. And um, it's a program, as you know, is hosted by the U.S. government. And I think it's really important that talented um, uh, undergraduates who have projects that they think are worth doing 
go to this program because it is about representing Americans abroad. <laughs> and that's that's important. Uh, to, to If you have a meaningful project that you think, I want to spend a year researching, Fulbright is, is a wonderful, wonderful program for that. Um, I did it as a graduate student, but you can also do it right after as your as a post postgrad. Um, I think there's the Marshall Fund too. There's a handful of projects out there that um, uh, international projects that I think are really worth doing. And if you're internationally minded, that these these programs are worth doing. My other advice is to just keep trying. Don't let one know. <laughs> Don't. I mean, lots of rejections come before the one that 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 makes the difference. And um, uh, and uh, you've just got to keep. You've got to keep working and trying. Thank you so much. And that is all such great advice. Unfortunately, this is all the time that we have today. Uh, Professor Tucson, thank you so much for uh, coming here and speaking with us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry. <laughs>